Welcome to a special edition of the Innovation Agenda with the California Technology Council, where we take a close look at the relationship between government and the climate that supports innovation and entrepreneurship. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. Thanks again to Big Figment for the soundtrack. You can find out more information about them at bigfigment.com. In a moment, we'll pick up with part two of our interview with Matthew Lemerle of Fifth Era on his worldwide survey of investor attitudes toward internet regulation. Before we get into that, just a couple quick reminders. The California Technology Council is very excited about programming and services being offered through CalCISO, the California Cybersecurity Information Sharing Organization. And for more information about that, check out californiatechnology.org slash CalCISO or email us at cyber at californiatechnology.org. There's more coming soon from Clean Acres and the California Business Incubation Alliance as well. For more information on those and any of our initiatives, please visit californiatechnology.org. We'll get back to Matthew in just a second, but first, here's a quick word from Office Depot. Leading a startup team? Hi, this is Janet McTaggart with Office Depot. Whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or setting up a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup's culture. From getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo, Office Depot can help. Learn about how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all these startup essentials and more at californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. Now let's turn our attention to part two of our interview with Matthew Lamurl. His firm, Fifth Era, recently completed a study on investor attitudes regarding internet regulation all over the world. So we pick up here right where we left off at part one. Matthew, there's an issue that uh, crosses over this space quite a lot all over the world, and it may not uh, be uh, so obvious as as the kind of technical lines between the question sets that you asked in your survey, but the post-Snowden era attention to privacy and an individual's right to privacy has taken lots of different forms around the world. I noticed that the countries that you surveyed did not include France and Singapore, but they are examples of, you know, the right to be forgotten as one example or are kind of extreme uh, responses, and they've, uh, you know, they've been a, uh, a real focus of discussion, especially among lawmakers in peer countries, about it being kind of an overreaction. So, um, in, in what way did you find that uh, that uh, lawmaker or, or regulator attention to uh, individual right to privacy came into these questions uh, from the perspective of doing business on the internet? Yes, uh, it's a very good question. It's a very timely question because this is one of the topics that's hotly debated and is in process uh, in all of these jurisdictions. Um, we had surveyed uh, France in the prior two surveys, but as I said, this year, last year, we focused on uh, Asia and the Middle East. Uh, we hope back to get back to Europe maybe next year or the year after. Well, um, the, it's, it's, it, I, uh, the way I'd like to respond to this question is actually to talk a little bit about um, the values that different groups of people hold around the Internet and what it does for them. And the reason I go down that path, Matt, is because 
I think we're in a substantial era of transition. Um, obviously, for those of us like myself, and I guess to some extent like you, Matt, who grew up before the Internet, uh, we have certain values that we hold dear um, and issues such as our personal profile and uh, the way we're viewed and the accessibility of our profile online is something that we may value or protect because of values that were uh, that we were educated around or brought up in in the past. When I look at the millennials, the current generation of folks, and particularly the connected, the Generation C, the connected generation, these are people that were born after the arrival of the internet, so that all they've ever known in their formative years is a connected, seamless, internet-enabled, mobile world. They seem to have very different values. They seem to have very different points of view on concepts such as privacy um, and data sharing and so on, and um, content sharing and so on. And so I think that raises an interesting question, which is if you were to make a regulation today and it was driven off some, a concept such as uh, uh, the value an individual has to remain private, whose values would you use to establish the regulation and whose values would you seek to protect? Is it the people who maybe are speaking loudly today but may not re re represent so much the future or is it the people in the future who will be the future and who are here today but maybe have less of a loud voice in, such, in something like the regulatory process? And I actually think that's a fascinating question. Um, I think that there is some risk that some lawmakers are moving quickly to put in place regulations, which I think in a few years' time they'll have to unwind uh, because I think the values of the future will be different from those of today. Um, for Internet businesses where investors are making an investment today which may take five or ten years uh, to reap benefits, uh, this is a very important conversation. And, and again, back to my earlier point, um, the, the economic burden uh, as well as potentially the liability burden of needing to meet laws such as those we've recently seen introduced in France is very significant. And for many Internet founders, the easier path is to simply move to another country. Um, if you were an Internet founder in Paris and your business would be from day one needing to carry the burden of a much higher economic and activity level because of the, the laws of your local country, well, like many, maybe 400, I believe it is, thousand other Frenchmen, you can simply go to London and launch your business there where you can jump on a plane and come to California and be much welcomed. So the relative competitiveness of each region and the degree to which a region or a country decides to be a first mover can very much impact its, its uh, ability to attract these founders and investors. And then, like I say, I think we're in a period of transition where if you made decisions today based upon the values of the most uh, influential people of now, you might find that in 10 or 15 years you would want to unwind those decisions as the next generation comes through. So uh, another uh, really interesting set of questions that you get into here, especially in the post-Snowden kind of period that we're in, is the kind of backdoor that's still being talked about 
uh, not just in the U.S. at the federal level, but state by state in the U.S. and in, obviously in lots of other places around the world. How sensitive did you find investors to be to the, the kind of backdoor to law enforcement, the, this natural tension that still exists between lawmakers and, and technologists? Yes. So you'll see, uh, for those people who download this uh, survey, which is available, I know, at your website and also at mine, fifthera.com, um, when they get into the detail of the questions, they'll see that we did ask some questions about the degree to which security services have access to data. And in fact, um, the main question we asked was, would investors be comfortable investing in businesses if the security services had um, access beyond that of, of uh, commonly held sort of worldwide standards. And then I believe we also asked some questions about do they have access without needing to get court orders. Um, I think, I personally, now this is me speaking personally, but I, I think that we should, we would be naive to think that um, security services in most countries are not going to find a way to work with their government to get access to information. Um, you know, these, in parentheses, spy services of each country are in the business of mining information and technology is making them ever more able to do so. The question is, again, one of relative competitiveness or relative disadvantage. So. Um, you know, if you are an internet startup in a country and your local government gives much more access than normal to its uh, security services, then at the same time, your users in other countries may find themselves exposed to that greater level of access, and they may be uncomfortable with that. Um, so obviously they have choices too. So if, for example, and this is just, if, if country A opens up and makes available all of this user information to its security service, and a user is in country B, which has a much tighter definition of what's possible and the process that needs to be passed through to get access, uh, then one would expect that the users in country B would be uncomfortable being exposed to the regulation and laws of country A. So now you have an internet startup, two identical internet startups, one in country, where, country A and one in country B. Which one would you do business with? Well, I, I would contemplate that the, I would propose that the users in country B would prefer to use the internet business in country B, and frankly, the users in country A would, even if they were still exposed to their local regulation. Uh, the alternative, which is the users in A and B are using the startup in A, as I mentioned before, means the users in B are exposed, exposing themselves more because uh, the country is based in country A. So um, hopefully I didn't lose you in that story, but relatively um, I think you have to, uh, lawmakers have to be very thoughtful about uh, how quickly they move in this regard, how far they move away from the commonly expected international standard. And I think it's probably better if you want to have an innovation-based economy not to step out and be much more, uh, much more uh, pro-exposure um, to your security service than the commonly established international norm. You know, Matthew, on the lighter side of the survey, it is also clear that while that's true on the 
kind of business side of internet regulation around the world, for those young millennials still thinking about their careers, you can go into the spy business and browse Instagram and YouTube all day long. <laughs> yes. Well, you, you know, I, I, I know that, for example, here in the U.S., the FBI is working very hard to recruit more and more young folk for whom uh, the Internet and the technologies of the Internet are something that they've understood from day one. They've been educated. They're graduating with big data or computer science uh, degrees, and they have the skills to get to work on this type of very, very large real-time data uh, uh, data sources and streams and flows. Um, it's new. It is new, and I yeah. think we're, we today are only at the first stage of this. I think we're at the birth of the Internet, myself. I think that the next 20 years we'll see so much more change than any of us can even imagine. Now, so again, we are still at the beginning, but you know, looking at some of the things that you've taken into account from the kind of free speech to the content liability to localization to uh, the ability of uh, national agencies to block certain sites and certain types of content. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, again, those kind of Singaporean and French or even the Chinese examples of, of regulation that some companies might not appreciate as much. Is there a laboratory of the worst case scenario currently around the world? Did you get an answer like that from your uh, survey respondents? We didn't ask that question, uh, Max. We didn't ask the question. Uh, most of um, the, the, the questions that we asked, we asked two types of questions in the survey, and maybe I should have said this earlier on in this interview. The first is what we've been talking about so far, which is we asked what would make you uncomfortable as an investor investing in an Internet business. And there we focused on uh, I believe it's 26 or 25 questions to do with potential regulations that we had heard were being contemplated or might be contemplated in one or many of the 15 countries that we surveyed. Um, the second thing we did was we also uh, talked about government policies, not laws per se, but other types of levers that countries have that they can use to stimulate their innovation economies and the Internet businesses that they're relying upon for much of their growth in GDP and jobs. And there the investors had a very different point of view. Um, there are, in, in every country, uh, the investors um, called out specific types of government action that would actually encourage them to invest more. So the the survey is not only negative. It's not only, you know, I don't like regulation and I'll invest less. Uh, the survey also does highlight in each country places where people can act and people and, and investors will invest more. In terms of the synthetic, uh, you know, what would the worst case scenario be? Let's put together all the, the worst things and see uh, which countries around the world represent some or all of that. It's, that's an interesting exercise. We didn't do it. Um, I certainly hope that the U.S. in particular, which is where I live and work and invest, I hope that the U.S. will be so far away from being the worst case around the world because I think the relative competitiveness argument is particularly important in the Internet. Um, I think that there are other countries around the world who have particular needs that they want to satisfy that make them a little bit faster to, to uh, exercise 
government censorship or government security access to data, you know, maybe they're confronted by challenges that we have less of, and therefore they want to use the regulatory levers more. And that may be exactly the right thing for them to do, given their societies and what they're trying to accomplish. The problem is it makes it very difficult for Internet businesses to set up shop in those countries. And as I've said a number of times, the founders of these Internet businesses, for the most part, can choose to live anywhere in the world they want. So if a particular country is no longer relatively attractive, uh, there's an easy answer, get on a plane and go to London or Paris or Shanghai or Sydney or San Francisco and set up your internet business there. And, and conversely, when it comes to the investors, they can just simply move their capital and either invest it in a different country, or if they're not allowed to do so, if they're, for example, a sovereign fund, they can simply choose to invest more in public markets or real estate or other asset classes and take it out of internet business if internet businesses in their country are no longer advantaged. So a couple of times we've talked about the, the ways that you looked at foreign direct investment in the survey. Obviously the kind of capital flows in technology are major factors and are hugely significant in a lot of the economies that you're talking about here. So. Were there any surprises that you saw coming out of the FDI questions and, and the nature of capital flows? And, and as you've said a couple of times, this is a very young industry, so there still is lots of opportunity to continue to capitalize on downstream growth. Yes. So um, I, I was very surprised in the following, but um, it's not so much a question of differences. It's a question of similarities. Um, Going into this work, we had anticipated that we would find quite different responses across the countries, because the countries do vary enormously. Uh, the 15 countries represent very well-developed Internet economies through to countries that have only just begun to get their people online. And they uh, are large and they are small, and they are uh, sources of foreign direct investment and countries that rely upon foreign direct investment. So across that, those dimensions, I thought we would see very different responses. I thought um, it would, we would be able to see much more differentiation. Uh, it turns out that on the regulatory side of the slate, um, the investors in all 15 countries are very consistent and very similar. And the, everything that you and I have spoken to so far on this podcast um, I, could have, I could pick almost any one of the 15 countries, and we could have had a country-specific conversation. I probably would have said exactly the same thing, pretty much. On the government policy side, there are more significant differences across countries, and some countries favor one lever, whereas another country might favor another. And that, all of that is in the detailed English language survey that the listeners can download. Um, but that, for me, is the biggest single surprise. Um, I thought we would see investors varying by country and by whether they were FDI, the in-market investors. And in fact, there was almost no meaningful differentiation. There's almost no differences in perspectives of the investors country by country when it comes to potential Internet regulation. For the most part, it is viewed as extremely of concern and in most cases, it would lead to less investment and less capital for these types of companies. Just a couple more questions for you, Matthew. It, it's, it is noteworthy that you 
included in this a couple of developing markets, you know, such as Nigeria and South Africa, but obviously a number of others. Were there uh, responses that came out of those markets that jumped off the page as being different from, uh, you know, fully developed internet economy nations, or did they generally come into line with what you'd see around the world? Yes. Um, so thank you for asking that, Matt. And I sort of wanted to refer you to the answer I already gave. The answer yeah. is no, they were very consistent, and it was a surprise. Um, we did manage to get the survey completed by a statistically relevant sized sample in each of Nigeria and South Africa. That was not easy. Um, obviously, we had to work very hard to get enough internet investors in those markets because they're relatively fewer, particularly in the case of um, not so much South Africa, um, but in the case of Nigeria, we were able to get enough. Uh, we had contemplated trying to do the survey in, in a few other African countries, and as we started down the path, we were simply not able to get enough respondents uh, to take the survey. Um, but no, I, um, if I were in Nigeria speaking today to the Nigerian government, I would not accentuate how Nigeria differs. I would accentuate how similar Nigerian investors are to the investors in every other country. And I would tell the Nigerian lawmakers that they need to be just as worried about these topics and perhaps more so, um, the less relatively advantaged you are as a destination for Internet startups, I believe the more you should worry about the degree to which regulation makes you more or less attractive. Um, of all of the countries in the world, the one that arguably might need to worry least about this would be the, the largest, uh, with the largest Internet economy today because there are so many other advantages to being a founder of a company in, in a country like that. So I, I do want to ask you just a follow-up about Nigeria. And the real question that I'll come back to is why Nigeria? But the setup is interesting, Matthew, in that we've encountered a number of organizations that operate at least a base in the U.S., if not a headquarters. And several of them, like the, the multinational media company Meltwater, even Stanford, Stanford University, and several other organizations are operating accelerator platforms in part emphasizing e-commerce opportunity in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's very interesting. So why is that happening? And, and why Nigeria? I realize it's not singularly the one place where the Internet is developing fast. I think the Meltwater uh, accelerator is actually in Ghana. But why, why take a closer look at Nigeria, and why, why is this opportunity so interesting there? Yes. Well, so... This is sort of out of scope for what I'm about to say is not in the scope of the survey. So I'm going to make some general statements. But uh, um, there is a body of belief, uh, there is a body of thinking that says the African economy is going to be a much more substantial driver of the future economy of the world than it is today. And so that, that, uh, that not only is there a lot of absolute growth to be captured in Africa, but from a percentage growth perspective, its growth rates may be very substantial. There's a second body of thought that says, um, because a Africa is a great place to pilot new technology approaches, new Internet-enabled approaches, which perhaps are difficult to get off the ground in the U.S. or the U.K. or somewhere like this, where existing solutions work just fine. And the example always everyone uses is M-Pesa in Kenya, 
uh, and it's just one example, but it's one that always everyone always brings up, where the Kenyan financial payment system sort of leapfrogged because it had no choice, whereas here in the UK or the US, we have payment systems that operate pretty effectively, and so it was perhaps a little less important for us to come up with novel new solutions. Um, so when you put those two things, and then the third thing is population in an absolute sense. So a country like Nigeria, which uh, many people don't know as well as some other countries in the world, particularly here in the US, I think many US are very surprised when they learn that the population of Nigeria makes it one of the largest countries in the world. Um, so put those three things together, um, a much greater share of voice in the global economy, uh, a marketplace that's willing to embrace new approaches which perhaps are not needed in established countries so much as they are in a country that doesn't have a well-developed infrastructure, uh, etc. And thirdly, very large populations in some of the countries. And you start seeing that uh, it could make an absolute lot of sense for an internet business to uh, to have Africa on its roadmap. It might make sense for investors to invest money into incubators. I guess the fourth point, which comes with the notion of a large population, is as education continues to uh, to extend and into the pop, uh, what is already a large population, the population of computer scientists and engineers and developers and so on in Nigeria or Ghana or Kenya is also growing very rapidly. And so that's an untapped resource. Uh, we have a war for talent in Silicon Valley and in fact in most innovation centers of the world. So people have to, you know, most companies find themselves needing to attract people who get on planes and come to those innovation hubs. Um, frequently, startups in those innovation hubs will have a operation center, a development center in some other country where the engineers live and can be accessed not only at a lower cost, but sometimes at very high quality. And that extends to Africa. I'm sure that there are a lot of fantastic computer scientists in Africa who would love to work for an internet startup, even if it was an international internet startup, uh, but they may not want to get on a plane and they may not want to leave home. You know, one of those uh, uh, elements that you described really sounds directly parallel to South America and its leap to cell phone technology, just the ability to kind of skip yeah. several layers of infrastructure investing. Yes. Well, absolutely. So that's... Uh, that, uh, and that tends to be true, doesn't it? Um, if we have a good working solution, especially one that's been you know, invested in over decades and where there's a lot of uh, sunk costs, so to speak, it's very, and there are large established players who are operating and users have come to accept that as the de facto solution, then I think that creates barriers to change and inertia tends to favor the old and tends to work against the new. And that was exactly, you know, at the outset of this podcast, we talked about how for the first 20 years regulators chose not to regulate the Internet. Well, that was because we wanted to give this new thing that seemed to have the glimmers of so much potential. We wanted to give it the opportunity to get off the ground, and we did do that. If we, if we had encumbered 
20 years ago, every internet with a body of regulation that was as dense as that that established industries typically uh, you know, have. Uh, I'm not sure that we would be anywhere close to where we are today. And um, I think the majority of people who will listen to this call, you know, the majority of people do view the internet as a very positive force. They can look at their own lives and see all the beneficial impacts that the internet has had. And they can see all the ways that they rely upon it that were beyond their imagination 20 years ago. And I think that's as true for the next 20 years as it has been for the last 20. Matthew, once again, absolutely the superior work, I, I think, for readers that want to go and download the report and dive deeper, uh, th that to me, page 101 represents the real excellence of your work. Every time uh, I've seen you go about this, it is this depth of the audience that you speak to that leads to just such excellent outcomes. So thank you for this work. And just one more time, where can people go to download the report? Yes, well, well, Matt, firstly, thank you very much for your very kind words. Um, the, the value of this report will come from people on this call not only downloading it and taking a look at it, but also hopefully sharing it with others. So we would encourage everyone on this call to, if they think that this was a worthwhile podcast, to share it on to their friends and conversely the same with the report. Um, I believe you're going to have the English language report um, hosted at your site, so in a moment you can probably give that uh, URL. But um, I, uh, my firm is called Fifth Era, so uh, if you go to www.fifthera.com, you'll see a tab called Perspectives, and this is one of the reports at that part of our website. This has been a conversation with Matthew Lamerle of Fifth Era. Thanks again, Matthew. Thank you very much, Matt. All right, great stuff there from Matthew Lamerle at Fifth Era. We've posted the survey in the research section of the California Technology Council's website, which you can find at californiatechnology.org research. Stay tuned for other interviews coming up soon with one of the founders of Radian 6, a couple of startup spotlights coming your way soon, and watch for a few new episodes on our YouTube channel as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Agenda is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.